Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 8th, we are studying Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. When Jesus and his disciples go looking for a desolate place to rest, the crowds continue to flock to Jesus, and he continues to show his compassion to these sheep who are in need of a shepherd. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Chris Hull. Pastor Hull serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Brother Apple, thank you for having me. It is always fun times being with you. Pleasure to have you again, Pastor Hull, as we are looking at Mark chapter 6 today. We're picking up with a very familiar account from the Gospels. As we prepare to look at these verses concerning Jesus feeding the 5,000, give us some context from St. Mark, from the immediate context, that'll help us get into these verses today. You have, right before this, you have Jesus sending out the 12. This is where you get that term, apostle, a sent one. You have these 12 men or the disciples, the followers of Christ, and now he has sent them out to do the good work of proclaiming the same things that he and St. John the Baptist have been proclaiming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then prior, just before the recording of the feeding of the 5,000, you have the recording of the death of St. John the Baptist. John hearing of these things in prison and then, of course, being beheaded because of the wickedness of man. And it's, it's beautiful because you have this narrative throughout the beginning of Mark 6. You have the Jesus being rejected at Nazareth, the sinning of the apostles, the death of John the Baptist. So it's not—it's kind of gloom, then high, then gloom, and now you have this beautiful time where Jesus and the apostles are seeking rest, and instead Jesus performs a fantastic miracle, one of the great miracles, not, not both quantity and qualitatively great miracles. I, I think you're right that this is a very great miracle. It is the only of Jesus' miracles outside of the resurrection that shows up in all four Gospels. What What is it about this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 that causes it to stand out so much so that all four evangelists write it down? Well, I mean, it's amazing because you have other miracles, like John records the seven signs, those things that show God's mind and desire for you, the raising of Lazarus, the healing of the man at Bethesda, and, of course, John then records the feeding of the 5,000. And it's both a, a miracle because you see a divine act happening, changing of two loaves or two fish and five loaves of what is it? it's Yeah. Two fish, five loaves of bread. Always get them mixed up. Uh, changing these into enough not to just feed a few people, but 5,000 men and women and children. And it's it's an amazing thing. It's something that you have all of these people would then go talk about. They were there when they experienced this. So it's almost impossible not to record it in your account of the work of Jesus because it's something that's just so huge. It's, it's a 
fantastic event that if you try to leave it out, there has to be some reason to leave it out. Because when you're putting it in there, it's like, I have 5,000 witnesses at least that say this happened. So you put it in there. It certainly does stand out in Jesus' ministry. I think with this account, there's that temptation for us because we know it so well, or we think we know it so well, that we sometimes forget to pay attention to what the text has for us. And in mm-hmm. particular, the the text that comes to us from St. Mark. And so there's going to be a time and a place, and perhaps even within our conversation today, where we're going to draw from, say, what John adds to our knowledge. But I find it helpful, particularly with a text like this, to make sure we pay attention to what St. Mark writes down for us and to Mm -hmm. see what kind of nuances he may be giving us just in the way that he records it. And, and this is true, I think, of, of Matthew, I'm not positive of Luke, that it gets put next to the martyrdom of St. John the Baptist, which is mm-hmm. quite, the, quite the contrast that, that we're going to see, uh, particularly even, and this may be, I hope this is not too morose, but think of what was happening when St. John was martyred. There was this feast, and now there's going to be a, a feast that our Lord is going to set, but a a feast that's going to point us forward even farther. So we're going to pick up some of those themes like that as we look at this text from what St. Mark has for us here in chapter 6. Any more introductory comments, response to that before we get started? No, I think we've covered most of it. We have a good amount of text to get through, and as I look at my scripture in front of me, I have lots of notes in it, so it's a very rich text. Excellent. We are in Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out... When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups, by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men." That's the text for today, Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. Pastor Hall, I think the main event is this feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus does, but the scene is set that, as you said, the apostles had been sent out earlier in this chapter. Now they've come back to Jesus. They're giving him this report, and he says, let's go away by ourselves mm. to a desolate place and rest a while. I don't know what notes you've got written there in your Bible, but this seems pretty important. We've got some words from Jesus. Why this desolate place? Why does Jesus invite them to come away by themselves for a time? 
when you do the work of the ministry, you're emptying yourself. Lewis, in his um, screw tape letters, makes the point that the demons drain us, whereas the enemy, meaning God, in the demon's mind, the enemy is God, this one fills people. The work of the ministry is to fill you with the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and the forgiveness of your sins. That That is the work that the apostles did. That is the work that pastors do now. They fill you with the good things of heaven. Yesterday, I did a funeral. So as the body is there in the casket, I'm proclaiming the promise of the resurrection, the assurance that Christ has destroyed death. But as I do it, it is a draining experience. It's not just draining spiritually, but emotionally, mentally, physically. As you bear the crosses with people, handing to them the gifts of heaven, letting them know that, hey, though great your sin, yet greater still is God's abundant favor. It is a joyous vocation, a great task, yet at the same time, a very draining one, because you are filling people up that are empty, and you empty of yourself. Not that you are saving them, but that you are handing over the one who does save them. And you're constantly doing it, and you need time to rest, to recuperate, that you can continue handing those things over, that you can continue doing the work of the ministry, that when a pastor is drained, this is why it's a blessing to have things like doxology in our Senate, where you tell pastors, take that rest, have that recuperation spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, so that you may do this work. Because when your pastor's drained and and frayed and burning at both ends, <laughs> mm. that work ceases because he just can't do it anymore. Either he turns to legalism or he turns to licentiousness, do whatever you want, instead of this is what the word this is the word of the Lord. The pastor having, the apostle having that rest so that he can fully focus on just doing what Jesus tasks him to do. What happens here mirrors, I think, uh, what happens to Jesus earlier in the Gospel of Mark, back in chapter 1, after mm -hmm. Jesus preaches at the synagogue in Capernaum and casts out the demon there and then spends the evening casting out more demons and healing more sick. He himself retreats to a desolate place to pray. Now that his disciples have gone out with his authority, have done those same things that he had been doing, he invites them into that same practice of receiving this rest, as you were talking about, which I think, based on what you're saying, this rest that Jesus desires for his apostles to have isn't just, hey, come take a nap for a while, put your feet hmm. up, physical rest, but it is the rest that, well, Jesus talks about, say, in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all who labor mm -hmm. and are heavy laden laden and I will give you rest. That's the kind of rest he's he's inviting his disciples to receive here. Right, and that gets us back to, or gets us to, maybe not back, but to, the way Luther even speaks in his hymn, these are the Holy Ten Commands on the Third Commandment, mm -hmm. put aside the work you do so that God may work in you. Yeah. 
and we have this rest from the chaos of this world. Because you think the apostles have gone out, not everyone accepted or received everything they said. They faced opposition. They had people that loved them. They had people that hated them. They had people that wanted to celebrate. People wanted to crucify them. And this is the reality. And that's a royal mess. And not only do pastors have this, all of us have it. Now, the gift that that hearers have is that they have that Sunday morning to have that rest. And I know some pastors will say, oh, well, when I preach, it's like I'm preaching to myself or I'm filling. But you're not. You're not just receiving, just being fed, being nourished. And that is why it is so important to make sure that your pastor has a pastor, to make sure your pastor is being taken care of spiritually, just as your pastor does for you. Because you have that rest on Sunday morning or whenever the word is proclaimed to make sure that your pastor has that Nathan, that one sent from God for him to work on him, preaching the law and the gospel, that he may have rest for his soul. Thinking forward a little bit in the text, actually toward the very end of this text, the way that Jesus actually accomplishes this feeding is that he takes the bread and then he Mm -hmm. gives it to his disciples to give out. Right. The disciples would have nothing to give out had not the Lord given to them first. And it right. seems that that's what's happening here at the very beginning of the text. Jesus recognizes that they have given out what he has given them first, and so he needs to give to them again so that they can continue. Well, for themselves first. They need to eat. <laughs> the the yeah. disciple, And that's actually what, what Mark says, that they didn't even have any leisure to eat because of all the crowds. And Jesus recognizes his disciples— if his apostles, if he's going to send them out and they're going to do the work that he's given, they've got to receive first. They have to be fed by their Lord so that they can, in turn, give those goods out to all the other people who need it as well. When um, this was before the COVID stuff, uh, by stuff, I don't mean COVID itself, but all the the um, out, the falling out with it, all the changes, you know, last year we couldn't have Easter inside and all that. Um, you know, the year before we have our Easter breakfast in between the sunrise and the later service. And I remember sitting there after the sunrise, I've preached, I've done, you know, I'm, I'm on, I'm jacked up, you know, ready to go. And I'm just not eating the meal. I'm moving around talking to people. Finally, we have this great woman named Sue at our church, Sue Fainer. And she comes over to me, she hands me a plate of food and she says, you're no good to us. If you pass out, sit down and eat something. And it's beautiful. I mean, and that's the reality, right, is you're no good to us if you're exhausted and you can't do it. Fuel up, be filled, and get back to work so I can know Jesus loves me. <laughs> it's beautiful. So Jesus is is calling his disciples into that reality in verse 31. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. That that term desolate place will show up multiple times here in this text, the recognition that it's a desolate place. Who's going to be the only one who can provide in a desolate place? It's going to be the Lord himself, Jesus. And I think the text invites us to see that, that even in the midst of this desolate place, this desert, this wilderness, if we want to draw in from the Exodus and the account of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and how the Lord provides bread there. We're going to see that happening here in this desert place in Mark chapter 6. So everything, I mean, verses 30, 31, 32, great, we're finally going to get to go away. Jesus is going to (laughs) fill us. 
but the crowd has other ideas. They, they, it's like they outsmarted Jesus or something like that. You know, like they get there ahead of him, and well, I mean, if if I'm one of the disciples, Pastor Hall, I, I'm just not that pious, and I would have been probably a bit frustrated. Like Jesus, we tried to get away. All these people are still here. Can you do something about it? But he doesn't react like that. Mm-hmm. Take us into anything in that that section as they're traveling and the crowds beat them. Well, I have written in this section, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And Luther makes this point wonderfully in his sermon on this, um, where he talks, preaches, and says, what... How are the people fed first? It's not with the bread and the fish, but with the word of God. They chase after Jesus, not because they hear he can do this, because this is where the miracle happens. In John's gospel, this is where they want to crown him. You know, the bread king is after this happens. Mm. So they're not chasing after him because they want bread and fish. It's because of what he does, the miracles and the word he preaches. They want to hear this, so he gives it to them. They hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they shall be satisfied. And By his word, they are. God takes care of your eternal salvation. He cares about it. He cares about your soul, and he feeds it with his word. And that's the blessing, that he cares for both. This miracle shows us two ways God feeds us, the spiritual feeding by the word and physical. He gives us our daily bread. He gives it in abundance and multiplies it for us. He doesn't let us go hungry. We may not be fat as kings, but we shouldn't be gluttonous anyways. But what this text shows us is that first and foremost, Christ cares that we know what our eternal fate is, that we are not destined for damnation, but we are destined for salvation, freedom in the eternal dwellings. And he hands that over. I mean, this is what pastors tell people, right? Bother me about the word. If you have questions about the word, I could do Bible study all day long. If someone calls with questions about theology, questions about life, questions about death, questions, we want to talk about these things. We don't want to sit through a four-hour meeting about how much an air conditioner costs. Now, of course, us in South Texas, we appreciate the air conditioner being there, but we love it when you bother us, not even bother us, when you beat us to the shore because you want to hear more of the Word of God. And Jesus is delighted in that as well. I, I should be fair to the apostles. We don't actually get a reaction from them at this point that they are annoyed by this or anything. Instead, St. Mark actually focuses on precisely what you're telling us. He focuses on how Jesus reacts to this, and he is not upset by the crowd that has beat him and the apostles there. He's not annoyed by them at all. Instead, the way that Mark records it is that Jesus had compassion on them, which right. is, is strong enough language in English, although I don't think it, it fully captures, or maybe we mm. don't have a full picture in our minds of just how strong of a reaction, how strong of a feeling of, of love. And again, that, that word in English isn't probably deep no. enough either. Help us to see, I mean, you, you've already started, Pastor Hull, help us to see the fullness of what Jesus is, is feeling toward these people when Mark says he has compassion on them. 
It's that Greek, and you and I know this Greek word. It's one of President Harrison's favorite Greek words to to say that splachnidzomai, that his insides are literally churning in mercy for them. He can't help himself. It's not, I always compare it when I preach on this. It's not like Jesus watched the Sarah McLaughlin puppy dog commercial <laughs> where you watch it and you're like, oh, I feel so bad for those puppies. But you don't go and then adopt 20 dogs. You know, you you go back to watching your show and you forget about it. That's not how Jesus is here. This isn't just some, oh, I feel kind of bad. It is literally his end. He can't help himself but care for them. He can't do anything but do that. He he is moved immediately. You and I see the homeless guy when we're stopped at the red light. You know, we feel bad for a minute. Like, oh, I wish I could give that guy $200. Oh, light's green. And I go. Christ does and he does more than just hand someone something he assumes everything that causes the compassion he says they're sheep without a shepherd he therefore is their shepherd who carries us through this life he doesn't just do one thing for us he takes care of our entire self and that's what this compassion is it's gut-wrenching mercy that is lived out in unconditional love that's the best. Maybe that's how we should say it. He had compassion. No, he had gut wrenching mercy that came out in unconditional love for these people. That's what is happening here. Uh, that's a fantastic way of of saying it. In in more idiomatic English, that doesn't take five extra lines to write in your Bible. Something yeah. more like, <laughs> although I appreciate that, no doubt. Something more like his heart went out to them. That's that's maybe mm-hmm. a little more idiomatic, but yeah, gut wrenching mercy that came forth in unconditional love. That is what Jesus is is experiencing here. That's what he's doing here. His compassion is an emotion, but it doesn't just stay inside of him. It leads to action. Jesus' action, and that's where the word love fails us in English as well. The word love often is thought of simply as an emotion, something that happens inside of me. And scripturally, particularly in a case like here where you've got Jesus having compassion, this is always leading to an action. When when we talk about God is love or he has compassion, this means that that he does something and, and that something is mercy. It's something that's good. And the way that, that Mark talks about it is he uses that image, and you've you've mentioned it already, Jesus sees that these people are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this is a pretty big scriptural image, that people are sheep, that the Lord is shepherd. Help us to to dig into that picture that the scriptures so often use that's used here again in Mark 6. Well, I mean, we see it in John 10. We see it in Ezekiel. You know, I myself will be their shepherd. I myself will guide them to streams of water. I myself will put them in good, clean pastures. You see the Psalm 23 language, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And a better way of translating that even is the Lord shepherds me, therefore I shall not want. I respond to his action. It's never me doing something, it's him doing the action. But John 10 really gets it crystal clear, is I am the that kalos, not just good, but I am the right shepherd. I am the needed shepherd. I am the exact thing you need, not just for this life, but for the life that is to come. And that's who I am because I lay down my entire self for the sheep. I lay all of it down on the cross for you. And that is the beauty of Christ as our shepherd. Peter talks this way, that we were all straying like sheep 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That we are called back by the Holy Spirit to Christ who guides us through this life. And that is the only way you can go through life. That is how you live in your vocations, is freed in the forgiveness of your sins. You live as an American citizen, as a Christian. You live in your context as a husband and wife or wife, father or mother, son or daughter, worker, as a forgiven child of God, a saint. Christ shepherds you through life that way. As you brought up John 10, that Jesus is the good shepherd, he's the right, the needed shepherd, I think that pairs nicely with maybe an undercurrent here. They were like sheep without a shepherd. If Jesus is the right shepherd, and if, well— these people should have had shepherds, Pastor Hall. You, you mentioned Ezekiel 34. <laughs> There's a critique in Ezekiel 34 of, of those right. who should have been shepherds. Who are <clears throat> these false shepherds in Mark 6 and any time and place that are leaving people helpless? What are they giving people? And how does Jesus give us what we actually need as the good and right shepherd? Right. Uh, Luther says heresy is Jesus plus something. Mm-hmm is whenever you add something to Jesus, you add the law to Jesus, you add emotion to Jesus, you add prosperity to Jesus, you add something. Faith is not a means to the end of your worldly desires. Faith is the gift from God that clings to Jesus' cross alone and rests in him. In that work unceasing as we sing, in salvation unto us has come. These false shepherds don't point you to Christ, They are not like John the Baptist who just had his head chopped off. They instead point you everywhere else. They point you to your belly, to your heart, to your bank account, to your friends, to your reputation, to your own good works, or at least the thought of it. They point you to anything else except Christ. They can even point you to the divine service, but a false view of it. They can point you to your Bible study attendance. They can point you toward anything. But if they're not pointing to the mercy of God in Christ, then it is a false shepherd, one who is not guiding you to springs of living water, but is guiding you to to water that's been sitting there for a while, not moving, like after a flood. And you don't want to hop in there. It's full of fire ants and moccasins, and all you're going to do is get bit. You are guided by Christ, who takes you to water that actually gives you life. Christ is the living water for you and for me. That's what we're talking about here in Mark chapter 6 with Pastor Chris Hull. We're going to take a short break here on Sharper Iron, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, February 8th. We are looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. We have Pastor Chris Hull with us. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, 
prior to the break, we were looking at Jesus being the good shepherd, the right shepherd, the needed shepherd. Mark makes note of that in 34. And then you've already started to talk a little bit about this. Immediately after that, Jesus teaches. He, he doesn't start with the feeding miracle, the feeding of their bellies. He starts by feeding their souls with his teaching. That's a pretty important point, I think. Well, it, it is, and it, it even gets back to the Psalms. Oh, which Psalm is it? 36, 37, where it says, God will give you the desires of your heart. Oh, which That's one 37, is it? I believe. 37, 4, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I'm, I'm right. looking it up. You keep talking. And it's beautiful with that because we think, oh, it's like, okay, whatever I want, God will give me. No, God creates in you a new heart that truly desires, like Matthew 6, 33 says, those, the kingdom of God. That you desire these things, you desire righteousness, you desire holiness, not in a um, a, a like pietistic type way where I'm better than you because I desire these things. But this is just what gives you joy and delight, hearing the word of God, being Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and just receiving this gift. That's where your happiness is, that being in church on Sunday morning, hearing the Word of God, reading the Treasury of Daily Prayer, doing devotions with your family around the home altar, going to the additional services if your church has them, like evening prayer or matins or confession and absolution, going to events at your church and just bearing burdens in the consolation of the brethren. This is what your heart delights in, and God gives that to you. He feeds you with that, and this text shows that, that Jesus— Gives them what they sprinted around the lake to beat them there and were waiting to hear the word. And he's like, Fine, you want it, you got it, it's yours. That's why I came. It is in Psalm 37, verse 4, that you were referencing delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires of your heart start to be about the things of the Lord. And we see that from the people, Jesus teaches them as their good shepherd. So that then comes back to reality, I suppose. It's getting late. The sun is starting to Mm -hmm. set. And the disciples, remember them? They were the ones that were empty at the beginning and needed to be filled. They point out to Jesus what seems rather obvious. I, I I don't fault them for this. This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Sounds like a pretty practical solution. They make good Americans, Pastor Hall. They're doing what is practical. And Jesus, on the other hand, he says something that had to sound outrageous to them. You give them something to eat. Take us into these interactions that we get between the disciples and Jesus here. Well, I love you give them something to eat, and they're kind of standing there. It's There's someone else's problem. It's their own problem. Jesus says, no, you are no longer your own. I've claimed you. You belong to me, and you now live for your neighbor. You give them something to eat. Well, Lord, I can't. So it's that preaching of the law is I can't do it. That's the reaction. 200 denarii, half a year's salary wouldn't cover this. Lord, I don't have that type of money. I can't do it. And that's even this teaching moment for the apostles. And your pastor needs to hear this. You can't do it. You are not the one that builds the church. You are not the one that feeds the people. You are not the one that sustains them. It is Christ who does. It is not Peter or James or John or Tim. You like Tim or Timothy? I don't know. I always call you Brother Apple. I don't know what you like being called with your first name. 
Either way is fine. Timothy is my oh, given name. So yeah, you know Timothy or Chris. It's not you. You can't feed them. <laughs> Even half your your salary, all your work, you can't do it. Only Christ can. And it's pointing to that yet again. Only He can teach, and He teaches through us. And only He can feed. Only He can give. Only He can support and sustain. It's not us, but Him. And it's beautiful. And yet also a command that now Christ does do this through the church. The church not only cares for the soul, the, the spiritual life, but the physical. That's why we pray for the sick. We pray for those with cancer. We pray for people in the armed forces, for healthcare workers. You have a benevolence fund where if there's people that need money, you give them to them. They need gas. They need to, money for rent. They need food. You know, you, that's what the church is there for. The church exists as the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We are the ones who love better than anybody else does. No one loves as much as we do. At least that's how it should be. Well, and the the only way that they can do this, you give them something to eat, is, again, if they've first been given to by Jesus. As you were saying, this is this is what the church still does today. I was reminded of Jesus' words to Simon Peter at the end of John's gospel, where he he reinstates uh-huh. him, and, and over and over, it's feed my sheep or tend my lambs. He says it three different ways, but the, the right. same thing every time. Your job, Simon Peter, as apostle, your job, dear church, is to give what you have been given. Give the right. goods. And, and that, again, as we were saying from the beginning of this text, and then what we're going to hear at the end as well, this can only happen when they've received first. And, and that's what they're going to need to learn here. Go ahead. Well, no, exactly. And and that's why it's so beautiful. They've just seen, they've just heard, they've just um, digested the reality of the great forerunner being put to death. Jesus saying, no man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist, and look what happened to him. And yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, meaning Christ. And that's who you cling to. It's fantastic stuff. So the disciples, again, you know, they, they're they confused at this moment. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii? It's got over half a year's worth salary. Is that going to be enough, Jesus? Is that what we need to do? Jesus is going to teach them. He says, hey, go find out how many loaves we've got. They bring him Five loaves of bread and two fish. I've got a. I've actually got a tie with five loaves of bread and two mm. fish, Pastor Hall. That if you never forget, I'll I'll take a picture and send it to you. Oh so me! A, I hope you can wear that this summer in San Marcos. That's what I really. want. All right, I, I so. might do that at our district convention. So I love it. Five loaves of bread, two fish, and then in verse tw- thirty-nine, Jesus commands all the people to sit down in groups and mark as specific where they sit down on the green grass. Here's one of those details that Mark gives us in the midst of this gospel where sometimes you think he's rushing through. Here's this just beautiful gem of a detail, green grass. And this is pretty important. You were telling me, Pastor Hull. Well, and it's beautiful as we were talking. You see this green grass. It shows that this is a a place of life, a place of water. I mean, you can tell when you're in the great state of Texas, it hasn't rained in a while because your grass is brown and crusty and dry. But when we've had the rain, we've had the life given. It's lush and green. It's a place you actually want to walk and rest in. And you find that spot and you just relax. You you are at ease. And Mark records that because 
Christ is saying, this is the place where I sit you so I can feed you. I can nourish you. That is the point here. You're not doing any of the work. It's all being done for you. And it's beautiful that Mark includes that in here, in on the green grass. It's not like they're sitting in the sand or something like that or on the rocks. They are sitting in a place that is nourished, showing that they are going to be nourished. Well, and, and what makes it even more striking, I think, is the fact that Mark has told us several times that this is a desolate place, which I think the, the Greek word there can also mean a, a desert place. You could even mm-hmm. understand it that way. And so here you, in the middle of this desolate desert place, there's just this, this green grass all of a sudden, pointing to this greater reality of what Christ is doing there. The picture that I've always had in my mind is, I don't know, do you ever watch golf on television, Pastor Hull? I do. Okay. I do. So, you know, when, when they're playing golf, like in the middle of Arizona, where there's no grass, and they show the, the Goodyear blimp shot, and everything yep. around it is dry and desert, but then Ah. There's the golf course <laughs> because it's been yes. watered. It's green. That's kind of the picture that I've I've gotten my mind here for Mark chapter six. That in the midst of this desert place, here's this green grass, and and the reason that there's the green grass is not because there happens to be an oasis of sorts. Although I suppose maybe there was, but the point is this is where Jesus is, and that's and I think that really connects to the matter of Jesus being the good shepherd. Think of think of Psalm twenty three yes. and where where does our good shepherd lead us? He only leads right. us to the the places of of quiet waters. That's where he he gives where the good green pastures are, and and that's what Jesus has done here for his disciples and for even this crowd of over five thousand people. One well, is beautiful because it then how does it relate to us today? You look at the desert that is this world. I mean, you you read Luther, you sing Gerhard, and they have that imagery of the world being a, a desert. Luther says the valley of sorrow in the small catechism. That is what this world is. It's a desert. You don't have in and of itself life anywhere. You can't. There's no satisfaction and nourishment, just idols that drain you. You're not going to have the fulfillment and the assurance you need, not desire, well, desire as well, but need especially anywhere else except in Christ. And you're not going to find that rest anywhere else, only where Christ promises to be found. Luther was was always fighting against the enthusiasts, and he'd always say, you know, the Holy Spirit does not come to you except in word and sacrament. He's saying you can't try to find the Spirit or find God somewhere else. It's He's not promised there. Where he is promised is in the green grass, in the word proclaimed, and the sacraments given, holy baptism, holy absolution, the sacrament of the altar. This is your green grass is where those things are given, and that is given at church. Your pastor there handing those things over to you just as Jesus did to the 5,000, handing you bread and wine, declared Jesus's body and blood that you may be nourished, absolving you all your sins that you may have rest in the midst of a chaotic life. Your brothers and sisters in Christ sitting in groups of fifties and hundreds with you receiving these gifts. I love that numbering is because God cares about each person. And you have the good shepherd, the one standing there, your pastor in the stead of Christ saying, here you have rest for your soul. In the desert of your chaotic life, your messy life, your drained life, 
you you're messed up your mistakes you've made here you have nourishment and you have the strength you need to actually make it back home in your vocation yeah, word word and sacrament gifts given by our lord that is where the green grass is i'm i'm reminded a little bit of Oh, and this uh, I'll, I'm going to try to draw the the lines here. So I'm I'm bringing to mind Exodus three, where Moses mm-hmm. comes before the burning bush, and he's told to take off his sandals because the place where he's standing is holy ground. Well, well, what made that ground holy? It, it wasn't anything inherent in the ground itself, but it was the fact that this is where God was. This is where God was was talking to Moses. And again, what makes this grass green? I mean, I suppose. Pastor Hall, that here in in Central Texas and and East Texas is that uh, East Texas? Yeah, where where you are? Yeah, in we're Tomball. East Texas. Yeah, you yeah, know, I I suppose when it gets really dry in the summer, you and I could could run the water bills up really high at church so that the the lawn around <laughs> church is green, and that'd be nice, and maybe that would be a, a way of of communicating a deeper reality. But the point is, even when the grass gets really dry here in Central Texas, because it, it's been over a hundred for months on end, we've still got green grass inside. Because we've right. got that's where the Lord is present. And that that's the key. That that even when it, you know, it looks like bread and wine, it, and it is bread and wine. But because the word is there, you've got Christ. You've got his very body and blood, and there is the green grass for you. And and your pastor's voice may annoy you, but when he's speaking the word of God to you, there's the green grass. Because because this is where Christ is present for you. And that's what makes all the difference. Well, and, and that's the reality. Where Christ is, there his benefits are of forgiveness, life, and salvation. And that's where he promises to be for you. That I was talking with uh, an individual, a woman the other day who's uh, started coming to, to Zion. And she said, you know, Pastor, I don't want Sunday morning to change. Everything else is changing. And I said, well, it's not going to. You're going to sing the same Agnes Day. You're going to sing the same Sanctus. You're going to sing the same Nuctimittis. You're going to sing the same Gloria, the same Kyrie. You're going to hear from the same scripture. You're going to confess the same creed. And you're going to hear the same Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This will never change for you. It will never change. It will always nourish and strengthen and forgive, for his word does what it purposes. And God's desire is not the death of the sinner, but that all may live and come to repentance, may have contrition and abide in the assurance that they are forgiven. And that's what this place is. It's for you in the midst of the desolate place of this world. And because Christ is there, that is where the green grass, that is where the good food, the food that does not perish, but the food that gives eternal life. That is there for you because that is where Christ is there for you. As you mentioned, Pastor Hall, when it comes to the nuts and bolts of this miracle, Jesus has the people sit down in groups. We've got 100 over here, 50 over there, and, and so forth around this green grass that is there. Jesus takes the five loaves, the two fish, looks up to heaven, says a blessing, breaks the loaves, gives to the disciples, and then they begin to give to the people. And similarly with the fish. I think we're, again, pretty familiar with, with how this account goes. One of the questions that I've, I've thought about and considered, and I'd love to hear what you, you think, is that some of the verbs here that Jesus does as he does this miracle sound very familiar from what we get in the account on Monday, Thursday, when Jesus gives mm-hmm. the Lord's Supper. He takes, 
he blesses, he breaks, he gives. Are there connections that we sh- and not to say that Jesus is giving the Lord's Supper here? He's he's not very clearly. But are there connections that we can and should draw between what we're seeing here and learning of our Lord Jesus and what we know he gives to us today in his sacrament? Oh, yes. When we look at this, like Luther would not say, okay, this shows us the institution of the sacrament. He always goes to that. But what this does is it teaches us the theology of the sacrament. What does the sacrament of the altar give us? As we say in the catechism is forgiveness, life, and salvation. Do those gifts ever cease? No, there is leftover. There is abundance of those things for you, just as there is an abundance of the bread left over afterwards. So there is abundance of Christ's forgiveness for you. He doesn't run out of forgiveness for you. There is always more. There is always an abundance for you. And we take comfort in that, assurance in that, that no matter how terrible we are, how sinful we are, how how many times we've repeated the mistake, Christ is there to absolve and forgive us. And the sacrament of the altar is that beautiful sacrament that nourishes the faith and strengthens it. That as we pray afterwards, that we may live in faith toward God and in fervent love toward each other. And that's what the sacrament does for us. We hear, I mean, this is even like a little mini divine service, the teaching and the meal. And you get it still today, the teaching and the meal for you, for the nourishment, the sustenance, the strengthening of your faith, that you may cling ever more to Christ as you journey through the strife of this life to his joys immortal. Yeah, again, not to say that this is somehow the Lord's Supper here in Mark 6, but that as we read Mark 6, we can reflect upon what our Lord does for us today in the Lord's Supper. Perhaps another way we could look at this I'm reminded of some of those Old Testament texts. One that comes to my mind is from Exodus 24. It's one that we would often hear on mm-hmm. Monday, Thursday, where the Lord invites up up the mountain Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they actually eat and drink with God there. And what a what a fantastic thing that is. There's other texts in the in the Old Testament that have this idea of a, a feast with God. Isaiah 25 comes to mind where the Lord of hosts sets that that rich feast of a well-aged wine and of, of wonderful meats just dripping with fat, you know, the, the best cuts of meat. Or even even Psalm 23 to connect the Good Shepherd image, how the Lord sets a table before us. What a, what a wonderful thing that these people got to experience, that the disciples got to experience, of eating with God here on this, on this yeah. green grass in Mark 6. How much more than, what a wonderful thing that, that God himself comes to us in his body and blood at, at his supper, and we, we dine with him there at his table. This is a fantastic privilege that our Lord gives. Well, and it's almost, if you recall the days growing up in school, you had the cafeteria, you know, in the movie Mean Girls, which I know you've seen, obviously, because you're you're a big, big movie guy. And you haven't seen it, have you? I haven't. You better tell me what happens. 
Okay, good. Um, well, Mean Girls, it's, it's, it's a story about girls in high school. But there's a scene where they show where everyone sits in the cafeteria. This is where the jocks sit. This is where the, the geeks sit. This is where the pretty girls sit. This is where the drama people sit. And it has all these things. But who you sit with shows what you desire, who you like, who you want to be with. Literally just sitting down and eating. You're not signing any documents. You're not doing anything. You're just sitting down and eating with them. And the reality that God sits down and eats with us is phenomenal because he's claiming I'm associating with these people. They are my friends. And this message is proclaimed to the devil. It's preached to the world. It's spoken up before his father in heaven that these are the ones I claim as my own. And it's beautiful because when we eat as well, we're claiming the same thing. I'm associating with Christ. My allegiance isn't to anything except Christ, and I live in the vocations he's given me. So it's fantastic stuff. Even more so when you think about how Jesus does this during his ministry, this is where he gets criticized, and not for this text, but in other places. Right. Who does he eat with? Who does he associate sinners. with? It's the sinners. Right. I, I don't yeah. belong at Jesus' table. <laughs> you know, I, I belong with the, the, you know, the table down at the very end with the nobodies. But right. Jesus says, no, you, you sinner, I came for you. You, you yeah. eat with me because of, because of who I am. And that, oh man, that, that is just, you know, if you put that in that cafeteria picture, which haven't seen the movie, but I, I, I got the, the image. Yeah. You think about getting invited to that table that you know you just don't belong there. Mm-hmm. How, that's, that's what the Lord is doing times a thousand when he dates yeah. to eat with us. Oh, it's, it's amazing when you, you see it that way, because with this feast, there's conversation with it. And that's the beautiful part. And what is the conversation? It's not, you have no right to be here. It's what you just said. No, I came for you. I'm going to tell you all the reasons why I'm going to tell you everything I'm up to says Jesus, every sin from womb to tomb, I claim as my own. It's mine to deal with. Now the father loves you. You know, heaven rejoices in you. And that's what you hear on Sunday morning in church. Heaven rejoices in you. The Father delights in you because I have come, like what is it, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. And that's what's happened here. And we do it in the context of feasting and celebrating and praising and rejoicing. The aftermath of this miracle, you've already touched on this a little bit, that there are, there are leftovers. When Jesus gives, there's always more. There's always more gift. It never runs out. And yet at the same time, Mark tells us that they all ate and were satisfied. When, when Jesus gives gifts, he doesn't give the last and the right. worst. He gives the first and the best. I'm, I'm reminded a little bit of, even all the way back to Genesis 1, when God looked at everything that he had made, all that he had given, it was very good. And and here you've got Jesus, after it's all said and done, everyone's satisfied, and there's even more than was needed. The gifts of God are just overflowing for us sinners. Well, and, and that's the beauty, the beauty of it, that, and only faith recognizes this. Only faith knows it. And that's why you see such a beautiful example of faith in this text with the people running to the other side of the lake to hear from Jesus. Faith hears that anew every Sunday. You are forgiven. God doesn't hate you. He loves you. 
and it moves us to tears. It's the reality that, ah, oh, God has no reason to delight in me. He has no reason to want to eat with me. He has no reason to want to spend even a second with me. And yet, in Christ, he wants to celebrate eternity with me. And what, what greater news can we hear than that? Pastor Hull, we got about three minutes here left on the morning. Give us your concluding thoughts on this text. Give us the, the good news that is ours in Christ Jesus, crucified and risen for us sinners. Jesus came to give of himself in abundance for you. He fed the 5,000, the bread and the fish with so much left over that he could have had another meal. He could have had second breakfast with it. He gave the word that sustained them, that fed them, that nourished them. And he gave it because he couldn't help but do it. His guts were turning inside in unconditional love for those people, for his apostles and for the 5,000. And that is the same way Jesus is for you. He's not angry with you. He doesn't hate you. He's not mad because you interrupted his vacation time. His delight is to assure you that you are going to spend eternity with him, that you and all of the saints forgiven all their sins, clothed in the robe of righteousness, are going to be with him unto eternity. That the feast you have now is a foretaste of the feast that is to come, the feast of eternity, where there will be jubilation, exaltation, as we tell the story, great is he, the king of glory, that we will dwell with Christ where the singing has no end, and we will celebrate the gifts we received here in abundance as we dwell forever with Christ where there is no sadness, but only joy. Pastor Chris Hull serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Pastor Hull, thanks for being our guest today. Brother Apple, thank you for having me. I always love being here. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions for us about Mark chapter 6 or the gospel according to St. Mark as a whole, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us this morning. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.